Hey there, and welcome back to Crypto Clarified. This is a podcast series where we come together from time to time to discuss the most captivating headlines and trends from the crypto space. My name is Benjamin Dean, and I am director in Wisdom Tree's digital assets team. And today, we're getting the whole Wisdom Tree crew out. I'm joined by Ryan Lavar, who's our chief legal officer and head of business and legal affairs. And I'm also joined by Jeremy Schwartz, Global Chief Investment Officer at Wisdom Tree. This is going to be a great discussion today. You're going to love it. But before I start, I have to do the social media shout outs. If you're in the US, you're a US listener, go and check out wisdomtreeprime.com. Go search it in the App Store, Apple, Android, whatever you like. Go and have a look. You won't be disappointed. Hit subscribe, regardless of whichever platform you're on. Hit subscribe and share it with your friends. Because as you know, sharing is caring. And as always, you can find me at Benjamin Dean on the Bird app. So for today's episode, we're going to discuss two very topical subjects that you're going to love. The first is around spot Bitcoin ETF applications in the United States. There's been a lot of movement in that space recently, and it's caught a lot of attention. So we're going to go through that and we're going to get two very informed people to help you think through and clarify what's going on. Because you know we love clarifying on the show. That's why it's called Crypto Clarified. Then we're going to talk about what has been a very recent and very interesting development, and that is an outcome in Ripple's case with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, it's one step along a very, very long journey. But uh, as we keep going along in this space and it grows, it matures, it changes, we get decisions like this. And it can be difficult to think through. If you don't like reading 100-page court documents, that's all right, because you've got Ryan here, and he's going to help you in that sense. But before we start the episode in earnest, I have to do my usual shout-out to James and Sam in compliance, and don't hit the 30-second button, folks. You don't want to do that, because it's the best part of the show. Before I begin, I need to state the following. To clarify the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of wisdom tree and subject to change, anything we present in this podcast is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, nor as investment or tax advice. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy, any, buy or sell any securities and reliance upon them is the sole discretion of listener. Please remember, past performance is no indication of future results. Great. That's done. Now we get on to the fun and interesting stuff. First of all, Ryan Lavar, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. Jeremy, you've been on the show a couple of times now. It's great to see you. How are you? It's great to have the real expert on the show with Ryan telling us what's happening in the legal world. Everybody's speculating. What do these applications mean? We have somebody deep in the weeds on these filings. It's great to be with here with Ryan. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. I appreciate you both taking the time, not just to chat with me, but also for the listener's benefit, because these are complicated matters and they do move relatively quickly. So your views to help clarify these topics is very much appreciated. Uh, to kick things off, we're going to talk about spot Bitcoin filings for ETFs in the United States of America. And Ryan, just to help listeners think this through a little bit, uh, could you give them kind of a, a snapshot of uh, the past, really? Because it's a relatively long history and uh, just help them kind of orient where we are and what's happened before us. Yeah, so, um, you know, spot Bitcoin ETFs in the U.S., um, 
there's been filings uh, well over 10 years now um, by different filers to try to get that approved by the SEC. Um, you know, those have uh, ultimately all been been disapproved by the SEC um, at different moments of time. Uh, these filings have sort of ebbed and flowed. Um, you'd see, you know, 10, eight years ago, uh, a series of filings get disapproved, um, you know, a couple years of, of waiting. Um, part of that was uh, also in the disapproval orders, um, you know, trying to address items that the SEC noted. Uh, for instance, um, you know, a maturing Bitcoin market, uh, you know, different exchanges um, that, you um, are, are involved in the mar in the marketplace, um, maturing service providers uh, in in that space. Um, so really, uh, I'd say there's been you know a significant uptick uh, also in in the last probably three to four years um, in the filing. So if we go back a couple years, say three, um, you know a number of uh, renewed uh, some some uh, prior issuers refiling. Uh, some new issuers uh, trying to get into the space with, with new filings. Part of that um, was, um, you know, potential enthusiasm around uh, Gary Gensler becoming the chair. Uh, you know, the thought was, is that, you know, he um, very uh, knowledgeable in the space, uh, you know, professor at MIT, uh, taught classes on cryptocurrency, and that, um, you know, the, the efforts before, um, you know, might uh, see some momentum um, with him, him as chair. Um, so uh, ultimately, um, the, the rejections continued. Um, that's not to say, though, that the SEC, um, you know, hasn't uh, warmed to Bitcoin a bit. Um, about two years ago, um, the uh, filers then filed actually to add Bitcoin futures to portfolios. So not actual spot Bitcoin, uh, but Bitcoin futures. Um, and, and that began in, in slow increments, essentially. So what the SEC first allowed uh, was, um, and, and these are uh, traditional uh, ETFs registered under the main body of law governing uh, ETFs and, and mutual funds, um, but they first allowed very micro exposures uh, of Bitcoin futures and mutual funds. And ultimately over a year long period, uh, that uh, became to uh, an approval essentially for ETFs to hold 100% uh, Bitcoin futures. Um, that then uh, precipitated uh, you know, some excitement that if Bitcoin futures have been approved, maybe now is the time for spot Bitcoin. Um, so with that, you saw some renewed vigor in those filings. Um, part of that rationale was that, you know, historically, um, one of the main reasons for the rejection of spot Bitcoin filings was um, a concern around the price of Bitcoin and its potential for manipulation. Um, and the futures actually are priced uh, the same way that many uh, spot Bitcoin ETF filers are using the basically the same price source. Um, and so with that, uh, the thought was maybe that um, concern of, of the SEC will go away. Um, that um, did, essentially did not uh, address all the SEC's concerns. And ultimately, that sort of suite of filings were, were all rejected. Um, largely out of concerns that the SEC indicated there's still concern for manipulation in the spot Bitcoin market because they're not regulated like a CME futures is uh, regulated. 
Um, and, and with that, uh, there's not a regulated market of sufficient size where the exchange has a surveillance sharing agreement. Um, and so what's happened more recently is uh, one of the filers filed uh, indicating that it would enter into or had ultimately entered into a surveillance sharing agreement uh, with one of the spot Bitcoin exchanges. And uh, then on the heels of that, a number of other filings uh, added that as well um, to ultimately, uh, you know, try to, um, you know, get, get, get the spot Bitcoin ETF approved. Um, and so right now there's essentially a waiting game, um, to determine, uh, you know, what, how, how the SEC, uh, you know, might react there. Great. Thank you for that. That's a really great, succinct explanation of, as you say, well over a decade of, of activity in the space for, for the listeners who don't fully understand the implications of a difference between spot and a futures based, uh, product. So Jeremy, uh, you know I'm based in London. You know that we that there are um, Bitcoin exchange traded products that operate in Europe, um, and there is a difference between a futures product and a spot product in, from the investor's perspective, right? Uh, could you just quickly run people through why or how they're different? And I'm thinking specifically about roll yields and, and contango, but you are the expert, so I'd leave it to you to kind of clarify it for the listeners. It's, it's really interesting. As Ryan said, they, you know, the SEC had gone in increments of allowing micro to up to 100%. We were you know, one of the firms who thought about getting 3% in some of our commodity strategies. And we've thought about that because we thought Bitcoin futures acted like gold. It, it was its use in client portfolios was as a competitor to gold. Uh, people say, hey, you can only mine a certain amount of gold, sort of like the digital mining of Bitcoin. And, you know, it had some some use cases as a currency like gold. And so we thought about it in that commodity framework and have added to a few different strategies in that perspective. You know, what, there was a lot of fears when the Bitcoin futures funds were first launched, the 100% funds, that because of the future, they, they have that slope of the futures curve. And when, when it's an upward sloping curve so that a futures price is higher than current prices, by the way, when interest rates when you have interest rates, it should be an upward sloping curve because if you can keep your money in the bank earning 5% like you can today, what you're willing to pay for something in the future has to reflect that you could have put 5% in today. So the, the interest rate market implies an upward sloping curve. But the the cost of rolling futures, right, when it's an upward sloping curve, you're not getting the current spot prices. And people worried when the because people put in expectations in addition to just sort of raw interest rate differential, there's storage costs that you have to factor into. If I'm going to buy it in the future, somebody's got to have it today. They got to store it over time. So there's sort of security costs of owning so you could sell it to somebody in the future. There's the interest cost of capital implied, but people thought you might get 10 to 15% cost to roll these futures. I think quite interestingly, some of the futures ETFs have done a pretty good job of tracking spots since they've been out there, which is just another way of saying the contango hasn't been there from where people really first thought when the futures curve was first coming out. So that's just one interesting observation. Um, I think the most interesting element is what to, what Ryan was talking about is if the prices are similar, 
where is that real concern of manipulated prices from the SEC, Ryan? If you wanted to expand on that particular angle, is that the real rub of the issue? Is the surveillance sharing issues the real rub of the issue? People have said when gold was first launched, there wasn't surveillance sharing agreements between gold and when they first launched a gold product. Is there something that makes Bitcoin different? Is it, you know, any, any speculations you would have on, on this Bitcoin futures price and the spot price? Yeah, I think um, you know it's it's interesting because that that is certainly um, you know an element that that the FCC has been criticized for. That uh, you know if, if if the concern is around manipulation, then um, you know how can you approve the futures product and not a spot product? I, th- I think a couple reasons there probably are. Um, you know, the, the futures products have a sort of a natural gate on the amount of size that they can be through uh, futures uh, position limits. Um, so you haven't seen those products grow beyond beyond a billion dollars. So when we say that the SEC has kind of moved incrementally in allowing products to be approved, you know, there is an incremental to allow the futures and, and, and they are also then somewhat gated uh, by, by, by the limits there. Whereas in the spot market and a spot Bitcoin ETF, there there won't be that gate. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I just, you know, purely, purely speculating here that 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 might be another reason is that a concern that the spot Bitcoin ETF may may grow to be to be large or multiple ones might might grow to be large, um, which, um, you know, might might. Um, you know, not uh, ha- have the gates in there that the that the SEC at least uh, has has approved so far. Um, I, I think the other probably difference too is that um, you know th- there is at least some uh, data, some some sharing uh, of data and understanding of kind of how those futures trade. Whereas at this point, and this is the key crux to what the SEC is getting at. There isn't, uh, you know, data uh, from or historically hasn't from the spot Bitcoin exchanges. Now, you might say, well, it's the price at the end of the day. Um, but but certainly, um, you know, the FCC uh, has been very focused on regulating that spot Bitcoin market. So I think part of it plays into there where, you know, the FCC has been focused on um, at, at least, you know, regulating these exchanges uh, more broadly, I should say, that, than spot Bitcoin particularly. Um, and if these changes aren't coming in the, the regulatory ambit of the SEC, if you will, uh, then that's essentially a gating item for the SEC. Um, now, now, with the entrance into these surveillance sharing agreements, I think the question is going to become what, what the SEC has asked for is a comprehensive surveillance sharing agreement from a regulated market of significant size. And so... You know, I think the key terms, comprehensive, regulated market. And the question is, that regulated market doesn't have to be by the SEC. You know, we have gold ETFs. We have plenty of other, you know, oil ETFs where that core market isn't regulated by the SEC. But uh, the SEC today has said, you know, these exchanges just aren't regulated in a way that they believe is sufficient. Um, So can somehow that be overcome uh, through this surveillance sharing agreement and other uh, information that the exchanges and issuers are providing, I think that's um, that that's probably one of the one of the key questions we're we're left with uh, right now. Okay. <clears throat> so you pointed straight up kind of what has changed in the last few months 
to address the previous, or at least one of the previous concerns, and that's these surveillance agreements. Can Ryan, I don't mind who answers it. Uh, maybe you both have thoughts, but in terms of like nuts and bolts, uh, just for the listeners' sake, when we say surveillance agreement, it's with whom regulated exchange, Ryan, as you just said, but like who with who is doing it, and and how does that work, and how does it potentially alleviate the problem? Just just for the listeners' sake. Yeah. So really, um, so so the exchange. So you know, it's any of the spot uh, Bitcoin exchanges. So Coinbase has been publicly named uh, as being the exchange that's entered into these agreements. And basically, uh, with uh, essentially NASDAQ and CBOE at this point, those are the exchanges that have made the filings for, for issuers. Um, and so what, what that would require Coinbase to do is to share, uh, you know, significant reams of data uh, with the, the exchange, uh, the regulated, the SEC regulated exchange, NASDAQ or CBOE, um, that could then be further shared or, or uh, examined uh, by the SEC um, to really determine whether uh, this activity uh, that, that's on exchange is, um, you know, been, been uh, you know, is, is, is manipulative conduct. Is there any evidence of any untoward activity? Uh, just really trying to oversee that data and, and, and how it works. So I think, you know, kind of the, the that, that's one nebulous thing. What is the SEC going to expect from that data? And and it, it will, will it be enough, if you will, you know? And and, and I don't think anybody today, uh, you know, knows knows the exact answer to that question. Although the belief is that you know, if there is a comprehensive surveillance sharing agreement, um, that uh, you know, that that market regulated market may be of a significant size to be able to satisfy it. So so that's the hope, certainly. Okay. Clear. It's, you know, <laughs> as the listeners know, I spent the, well the one on. thing I'd add, maybe just stepping back is, um, you know, just um, understanding kind of what's what's different here. Why is it taking so long for these Bitcoin ETFs to be to be approved when other types of ETFs go to market, you know, in 75 days? Um, and really, the difference here is in the filing that we're talking about is one that the exchange makes. So, you know, the vast majority of ETFs in the U.S. today um, are governed by what's called the Investment Company Act of 1940, which governs funds that invest generally in, in securities. So, um, you know, our typical stocks and bonds and the like, which uh, which at some point will be a segue to the, to, to the Ripple uh, <laughs> Ripple discussion. But, um, you know, and, and really, uh, even going back a couple of years, um, there weren't uh, listing standards for all types of ETFs to be listed on the exchange. Uh, and so what ETFs had to do is uh, essentially apply through the exchange for special listing rules. Uh, and that goes through a process, uh, not to get too technical, called Rule 19B4 under uh, the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 that governs essentially exchanges and secondary market trading activity. Um, and, but, but what that does is it's essentially an application by the exchange on behalf of the issuer to make up essentially listing rules that'll satisfy uh, the, the commission SEC that, that these rules are designed to prevent, prevent fraudulent and deceptive conduct. You know, the, the, the reason that um, it can take a long time is because, you know, that uh, type of filing is, is completely subject to the SEC's discretion uh, in terms of, you know, how they're reviewing it, 
there now are specific timelines. So you see generally that these are reviewed, um, you know, within within six months, and then the SEC will either extend it or reject it, and then ultimately leading to uh, an approval or rejection. Um, but it's those really filings um, that that are key to, um, to to what's been been necessary, and it's not um, like existing ETFs part of an existing complex that invest in securities. Those ETFs just don't have to go through this process because they meet generic exchange listing standards and can generally go automatically effective in 75 days. So here, it's not an un, it's not a new process per se. Many ETFs have had to go through it, from gold to oil to ETFs investing in uh, you know commodity futures and the like. Um, but here, um, you know the the SEC um, can really dictate what their expectations are. And, and so that creates a little bit of a nebulous atmosphere to really understand in, in time what, what the SEC truly wants. I see. Okay. And let me jump in with one more question Please. here for Ryan. Because, Ben, Ryan, the, there's a lot of the ETF analysts on Twitter in particular speculate about what each little step of this process means. People are studying these 19 before filing. There's probably like 30 applications in front of the SEC. In terms of the key timelines milestones there's there's news like hey the sec put something in the federal register what do all these different things mean do you do you have a this pure speculation but do you think they will allow one person to list before everybody else do you think there'll be a group of these things that come together how do you think through these steps in the process yeah that that's a good question i mean essentially uh the way the way the process works is um you know, the, the exchange is responsible for the filing. So it works closely with the ETF issuer or sponsor to uh, help develop, uh, uh, you know, information and facts around the ETF. Um, but then, for instance, the surveillance sharing agreement is entered into with the exchange itself. So it's kind of the key new piece of information. Once that whole document is drafted, um, the exchange then essentially files that with the SEC and the SEC looks at it and can reject it for you know technical reasons generally. So here, these were initially rejected because um, the the uh, exchanges indicated that they would be entering into a surveillance sharing agreement. Um, and so that I think the SEC's reaction uh, was, you know, uh, that's really not new. You're 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 telling us you would. That's a requirement anyway. You know, show us the agreement. Um, tell us you've entered into an agreement. And so you saw then a, a flurry of refilings to do that. Once the SEC accepts those, that then gets published ultimately in the Federal Register, which that's kind of the key item. And, and that's what a lot of the reporting that you were just mentioning, Jer, is now that kicks off a timeline to then where the SEC uh, you know, needs, to, needs to respond by um, and so, you know, generally that timeline extends uh, well into the, you know, the nine month time frame, um, you know, but uh, but that's why you'll start seeing, um, you know, and, the, and then you see also that, uh, you know, a certain filer filed first, somebody filed second, um, you know, generally speaking, uh, I'd say, you know, we, we've historically seen ETFs uh, launch uh, in, in sequence of those filings. Here, I'd say it's a little bit different because we have a second piece that frequently isn't focused on, and that's actually the prospectus. 
Um, so right now, you know, you have all the issuers that have filed prospectuses. But if you look at the prospectuses, they're they're largely sitting there. Normally, what you'd see uh, is is a sequence of prospectus filings and updates. You know, one month, uh, next month, another update. And what's that showing is there's a dialogue with the SEC on the prospectus um, and res- the, the, the issuer responding to comments to hopefully get the SEC to allow that prospectus to be effective. So even if these exchange filings are approved, then you've got to move to the prospectus process. And that's going to depend on, you know, what's the extent of the comments. That's where there are some nuances, um, you know, in the different ETF filings. You know, different filers have different custodians. You know, that might be important to the SEC. They're using different price sources. So those filings are going to have different questions come out of them by the SEC and either how quickly the issuer can respond or if the SEC then focuses on some piece of those filings where one issuer has addressed most of the questions uh, more promptly or in a more satisfactory way to the SEC, that issuer, even though they may not have been first technically to get that that exchange listing approved, might ultimately be the first to get their prospectus approved and launch. So to me, it's those two items that need to come together um, for approval. Uh, but if you look at all this timeline, you know, uh, where we still could very well be, you know, a good, you know, year and a half uh, away, um, even even under the best circumstances, I, I hate to say. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a great explanation there, because it leads to what I wanted to ask next, which is like from where you sit, um, you've mentioned the surveillance agreements to deal with potential for market manipulation. You've mentioned a few other elements there, like the custodian, the pricing source and whatnot. Are there any kind of sticking points that you think that folks should keep an eye on, at least those who are in, on the Bird app, but also those who are kind of interested in the process? Where else might there be obstacles or roadblocks that means that it's not three months, it's maybe 18 months? Where might they lie specifically for this kind of a, a product? Yeah, I mean, I think, you you know, it's going to be when we start um, some months down the road, start seeing the response to the uh, to these 19 before uh, listing applications. Um, you know, if if, uh, you know, those are ultimately approved, um, which is certainly an if I think that, um, you know, what what will what, what what we may see from those is that, you know, the SEC asks for more information. Those are frequently amended during part of the process. So. Yeah, we might see more detail around uh, the surveillance sharing agreement and the type of detail uh, that's being being described there. Although it all is already pretty detailed uh, right now, right now, much of the information provided um, might see some more there. Uh, but I think it's really then once those are getting to a place, um, then the question becomes: Does the SEC they've approved the listing generally? But do they have questions from a prospectus standpoint? Okay. Um, and I think once we start then seeing sort of those prospectus filings start updating, that will help give an understanding of the types of issues that uh, the SEC might be thinking about, um, you know, in, in that regard uh, as well. Um, you know, certainly one of the one of the reasons they've approved the Bitcoin futures ETF is because it's, um, you know, the futures uh you know, are custodied, um, you know, through, uh, you know, SEC or, or CME regulated entities um, and can be custodied by brokers, SEC regulated. Um, that's not the case with spot Bitcoin. So 
you know, I think there will be a focus on on the custodial aspect, um, you know, and, and certainly, you know, how is that uh, Bitcoin uh, being overseen in a way um, where, uh, you know, the SEC can be comforted that uh, there are sufficient controls in place um, to, 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 to be protective and, and oversee the actual, uh, you know, spot, spot Bitcoin. Um, so probably, probably that, that cadence is the, is the next item to, to keep an eye on once the 19 befores, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, move through the process. Okay. Got it. And let's, let's go back to ripple, this security, <laughs> the security Ryan talked about, he teased out that one of the concerns is things that are called securities. There's this whole question are crypto assets securities and there's been you know the sort of famous lawsuit with ripple and there's some commentary from the judge um what's your first impression of all the interpretations which is you know some of the exchanges saying hey uh we are no longer in, in gensler's crosshairs because we are not we are not dealing with securities is is that a step too far from some of these exchanges to be making those comments the chair be, before well, we do I that guys like for those who don't follow court cases too closely in the United States around crypto asset securities. Just before I, just for 30 seconds, can you just explain what this is? Because it's been a three year journey and it's not obvious to everyone, but that's important context for us to yeah. see the decision here. And the yeah, decision. exactly. And I think, uh, and, and it, in the explanation, I'll take us back to uh, the 1940s actually. All right, let's which, go. Uh, be fun. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, but no, you know, so, so look, um, you know, the, the SEC um, has been very focused on indicating that, you know, I, th I think the statements are that uh, a significant or, you know, majority of cryptocurrencies are securities. Um, you know, that uh, the SEC has, you know, then um, taken uh, essentially filed uh, enforcement actions or litigation um, against, uh, you know, certain issuers. Um, the issuers of, of XRP Ripple uh, is one of those um, uh, cryptos uh, that has, uh, you know, been sued uh, by by the SEC. Uh, so that suit, you know, started uh, a couple of days before Christmas, I think, a couple three three years ago, as you mentioned, Ben. Um, and really, you know, the heart of the issue is um, that, you know, if we if we think about sort of what is the definition of a security. Um, you know, if you look in the statute, you'll see things that we always think about stocks, bonds. Um, but then, uh, you know, a few lines down is this term investment contract. Um, and so essentially the SEC has taken the position and their enforcement actions or these, um, uh, you know, cases that they're litigating that uh, certain digital assets are investment contracts. Um, and so that takes us then to the 1940s, uh, where there's this uh, Supreme Court case called the SEC versus Howey, H-O-W-E-Y. Um, and, and basically what, what that determined is um, it, the, the question there was whether an offering of units in a citrus, an orange grove uh, development that was coupled with a, a contract for sort of cultivating the oranges uh, marketing the oranges and then remitting proceeds to those investors was an investment contract and a la a security. Um, and if we step back and say, if I'm selling you, Ben, an orange grove, you know, nobody would call that a security. I mean, I'm just selling you an orange grove or I'm selling you an orange. That'd be nice. But if I'm doing other things 
to to potentially enhance the value of that orange through it through this enterprise where then your expectation of profits is is from what I'm doing that is then an investment contract and how we in that case uh, the Supreme Court indicated that that in fact was an investment contract and really it comes down to sometimes it's articulated as four factors but I'll articulate it as three uh, as the court uh, did for in the, in the ripple case and, and it's really an investment of money in a common enterprise with the third prong and an expectation of profit solely from the efforts of a promoter or a third party. And so that's been the question, um, you know, are these investment contracts? And the SEC has over time, um, I think, you know, really through either enforcement actions or even pronouncements and statements, uh, you know, kind of broadened uh, many interpretations of what each of those elements and how those elements might be met. So right now we have a fairly broad landscape uh, as, as largely determined by the SEC, not by the courts um, around what would meet this definition that is now seeing some challenge in the courts. And, and, and honestly, the, the litigated cases to date um, the SEC has largely been on the winning side. And so this was the first time, really, where there was a decision that said, wait a second, we actually don't have a security here, not an investment contract. So maybe I'll stop there and then we can maybe dig, dig into the weeds a little more um, on, on, on how we how, how, on exactly, you know, kind of kind of what that meant. Yeah, let's do that, because kind of the it, it, it is quite nuanced, this one. Um, yeah, it, it it is very nuanced. Um, so I think I think the headline item, um, you know, which I think the the crypto industry really cheered for, was that the judge said, you know, XRP inherently is not a security. You know, it, it's basically just a digital token. So you know, that's not a security. And so you know, when the SEC is saying crypto assets are securities and you have a judge saying inherently this crypto asset is not a security that um you know seems to be a win um certainly uh then the judge said if you're talking about an investment contract that's very facts and circumstances specific so you really need to look at the facts and circumstances and there were there were a couple of different instances that she looked at the first one was sales to institutions where you know, the the uh, Ripple executives sold XRP to, you know, very sophisticated institution, you know, hedge funds and the like, uh, you know, made statements around XRP. Um, and basically the judge said, you know, in that instance, we have these sophisticated purchasers that were purchasing directly from Ripple. Um, they must have had an expectation of profits. They were sophisticated. They truly understood what the Ripple executives were talking about, the whole nuanced business of Ripple. And in that case, all those factors coming together really created this investment contract. So an investment money in a common enterprise Ripple with an expectation of profits to come from essentially Ripple's actions, you know, Ripple making the enterprise better. So there's an investment contract. But so that was definitely, you know, win for the SEC for sure. Um, but then you go to the next piece and the judge said, 
these what what she called programmatic sales. So essentially, sales on exchanges um, that you know the purchasers on exchanges were didn't know they were buying from Ripple, and they may very well not have been buying from from Ripple. Um, you know, they we don't know what their motives were for buying. Uh, many are buying just to be you know speculative. Uh, they're not expecting profits from Ripple's efforts. Uh, probably many are unsophisticated, so they're not parsing through all these statements that Ripple's making out there to try to weave together an understanding of what Ripple's doing. They're just trying to invest in a crypto and, hey, make some money if it goes up, you know. Um, and so the judge said, there's no investment contract there. That doesn't have this, especially this third prong, an expectation of profits from others. They're just buying on an exchange. Um, and so that that was really, I think, and then when you're saying the exchanges are now saying we're listing Ripple, that's what they're really hanging their hat on is, is this statement. Now, there's a little bit of ambiguity in the decision because the judge said that, but then there's a footnote that says, but I'm not addressing more broadly whether any crypto sale on an exchange is not an investment contract. But if you've got to draw the line between uh, draw a line from what the judge's reasoning was to any other crypto being sold on an exchange. You got to look at the facts and circumstances, but the exchanges clearly are becoming comfortable enough that their prior analysis, the, the assets they were listing weren't securities, still holds, and is even further emboldened now um, through 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 this decision. Um, and then the third piece was that uh, Ripple was. Um, uh, distributing XRP to uh, other third parties um, like employees uh, and and those um, were also determined by the judge uh, not to be not to be securities or or more particularly not to be investment contracts um, so you know we still have um, a, a little bit of uh, you know clarity uh, that needs to be provided I think, you know, when I think a lot of people that are that are looking at the decision sort of step back and say, well, gosh, this from a policy standpoint just doesn't make sense. The sophisticated sort of purchasers are being protected by the securities laws, but the uh, exchange purchasers, you know, aren't being uh, protected uh, by the securities laws. And 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 but I think you need to step back from separate policy from legal and if the answer is that these types of transactions aren't securities, then they're, then they're not securities. And so from a policy standpoint, that's likely where Congress needs to step in if there's viewed as being a gap there to really fill that gap, which has been a lot of the dialogue in the industry around there needs to be legislation here to more uh, carefully define uh, what crypto is and who should be regulating it. So I think that dialogue is only going to increase um, in the coming months. I mean, what's interesting is on the back of that news, you saw a lot of these, what you call altcoins that are not Bitcoin Ether. Bitcoin Ether have been in their own world. Uh, you got the futures that trade off Bitcoin and Ether, but everything besides Bitcoin Ether has been lumped into this, this altcoins type universe. And, you know, they definitely... It's funny because we talk about the security of the SEC being under their regulations, but the people actually rejoiced when they said these things were not going under SEC regulation, that there'd be more maybe trading interest and speculation activities going on then. There's certainly some positive price moves on there. 
I mean, people talk about the ETF as being another positive catalyst for Bitcoin itself, that, you know, if the SEC is worried about pricing and manipulation, there's nothing like the transparency of an ETF wrapper to trade it institutionally, bring down some of the cost to access some of these things. So there's some, there's some benefits of the ETF structure that can happen from that. But in, in terms of the, the, from the SEC's view, it is a clunky trying to map, you know, what you typically think of securities laws and what you have to do to comply as a public company versus a public token. You know, are they going to have to, if, if they do go down this path of calling more of these things securities, how do you see the the digital tokens, they're going to have to come up with new laws, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, you know, the 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 implication from the from the ruling is that you essentially have a dividing line that at some point something XRP in this case was a security. There was an investment contract in the sales to the institutions um, where and to your point, Jer, what that means then is that, you know, the the issuer needs to draft a prospectus, needs to have that reviewed by the SEC, needs to file a bunch of other documents, needs to wait for the SEC review that, address comments, give that to investors, or rely on an exemption, um, which in and of itself typically has disclosure requirements. Um, but then at some point in certain transactions, that same, that same token, uh, because the token isn't a security, but there, there's this... Uh, lack of this uh, elements of an investment contract, that that's thing that I'm buying isn't a security. Um, and so where is that dividing line? Uh, you know, and so if I'm buying on an exchange, it seems like at least if you uh, extrapolate, now the judge said you can't extrapolate, but you know, many are extrapolating that, you know, every other, many other digital assets are going to be the same. They're not securities, um, you know, uh, it's tough. I think I, I think that you're you're in an area where you know you you we really need um, if you want clarity uh, some congressional action to to really to re to really do that. And I think you know part of that too is that you know the SEC um, you know has really been largely very aggressive on the enforcement front, um, and so a lot of industry players are saying. Look, we, you know, if, if that's how the regulation is going to come to be and the interpretations, then the SEC really isn't the regulator of choice, even though we want to be operating in a regulated environment, crypto industry says, um, the SEC with their posture isn't the regulator to really be the CFTC or some new one. Um, you know, we'll see, uh, you know, if Congress moves. There's a couple bills out there. Um, and certainly following the Ripple decision in the last week, um, there's been a number of, uh, you know, congressional representatives that have really been speaking out saying we, we need to legislate here. Um, because really, the, the judge's decision does leave from a public policy standpoint, um, you know, something that, that isn't isn't satisfying that sophisticated investors are are protected and, and exchange buyers aren't. Um, but but that doesn't mean that the securities laws need to cover them. It means that there probably should be some law uh, covering them. And the question is, what what is that going to be? Um, you know, going from there. Um, Got so it. Time will tell. <laughs> yeah, time will tell. Uh, we're coming up on time, so this is uh, usually the part of the episode where we pivot and ask about where you think the future is going. Ryan, you've already kind of pointed at one area there. Just watch Congress. 
But just thinking about one or both of these topics, spot Bitcoin ETFs, and Jer, I'd be looking for you there. Uh, sometimes I'm asked about like, how would we expect markets to respond if an approval came through? Uh, of course, you're welcome to talk about Ripple as well, because we already saw what happened with a court case in the past. And then Ryan, like, where do you think, and you've touched on it there because it's, you know, is this generalizable? Uh, can it be appealed? Things like that. Uh, where do you think things are going or what should people be keeping an eye on over the next six to 12 months? And Jeremy, I'd ask you to kick off and then and Ryan will close out with you. I, I think what's really interesting and what's driving the price, you know, you know, 2022, you had a bear market in tech, you know, driven by higher interest rates. Uh, you'd say things that don't carry a profit stream, like there's no interest that comes off Bitcoin. It's, it's you know, the cost of capital went up, you know, and so that you could say some over underlying pressure for some of it. But what you had this year, again, a banking panic, people sort of losing some faith in the deposits of banks. And then that also brought more interest and it sort of some, some of the hallmarks of, of when Bitcoin was first created was concerns about the banking system and having this alternative uh, in terms of having a sound money type policy, a fixed number of Bitcoin ultimately in existence sort of very interesting questions. I, I, you know, I wonder, will the ETF really bring in a new class of investors? I mean, if people want Bitcoin, they obviously have many different ways of getting access to it. They could hold the physical, they go on the exchanges, you know, what it, it, it removes a stigma. I mean, there's still a stigma from some people of it's not in their traditional wrappers. You've got to open these new accounts. Uh, and I do think the cost of trading will come down. So whenever you democratize something from an ETF structure, it does help bring a new class of investors. So I do think there will be some incremental demand from, hey, I could buy it in my Schwab brokerage account instead of opening a Coinbase account. I think there is some element to that. Um, and but I think it's the stigma more than anything, uh, because I think there's the, the sort of lack of clarity from the regulators has made questions. And I think you might have seen more RIA's advisors put it in more if they understood how they would be regulated. And so I think that's the big, big question, even beyond Bitcoin, is how does this all fit in from a regulatory standpoint? And I, so I think this Ripple one is as much as much interesting as the Bitcoin ETF, you know, that to me the broader application is beyond Bitcoin. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Um, I, I'd echo what you just said, Jer. And I think, um, you know, just following up on on Ripple, I mean, I think the interesting thing to, to watch there is is going to be, you know, will the SEC appeal the decision? Um, you know, they certainly won one prong, but I'd say that the prongs that they lost are, are probably, you know, more important maybe, um, certainly from a policy standpoint. Um, the 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 crux of it though is that you know right now it's a uh, one decision from a district court judge um you know although important in in the southern district of new york very persuasive to other courts um if you appeal and lose you then have the entire um you know um uh that then um you know district courts uh within within that um you know uh jurisdiction uh then covering uh and then you have uh further solidified uh through an appealed decision um so i think that'll be that'll be interesting to watch um you know and also um i think how you know the exchanges and issuers respond um you know it's interesting because um you know, uh, to the facts of the case um, in terms of the exchanges, um, how they might change their analysis as to what is a security, 
um, which I think, you know, many of the exchanges in the U.S. Um, certainly have, uh, you know, very um, prescriptive processes around that. And then also how the issuers uh, respond to, um, I, I think will be will be interesting. Uh, so, you know, uh, still uh, clarity is 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 lacking. Um, so it'll be good to see if we get any clarity also, including from Congress. <laughs> yeah. That'll be fun to watch. I hear you. Great. Well, look, listeners, I tell you, if these topics, there's so much nuance. And the whole reason we do the show is to bring clarity to these kind of topics, help you think it through and understand what's going on. Yeah, you've just got a masterclass of that. So Ryan, Jeremy, I thank you so much for taking the time uh, to, to explain all of this today. Uh, unfortunately, though, and as much as I'd love to keep discussing this, we are out of time. I hope everyone's found today's podcast useful and informative. If you're in the U.S., Go to wisdomtreeprime.com. You can also find it on the Apple and Android app stores. You can find me at Benjamin Dean on the Bird app. Uh, thank you very much, Jeremy and Ryan, for participating today. And thank you for listening as well. I can't wait till we see each other next time. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Thank you.